Colossians chapter 2, scripture reading, one read verses 8 through 23. Colossians 2, and we'll read verses 8 through the end of the chapter. Follow along in your copy of scripture as we read together. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says in verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Brief prayer. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding, and I pray today that your word would not return void, would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in what's called the Earhard Seminars Training, or EST, it's a seminar approach to spirituality, The leader is kind of like a guru leader. He promises that if you go through his 10-step process, you will reach divinity. In fact, you can be enlightened after only two very intensive weekend seminars. This we might call a form of ritualism. I don't know when you first encountered it, but my first encounter that I recognized as legalism was uh, the legalism of Jehovah's Witnesses when I was in elementary school. There was a girl in our classroom who was not allowed to have her picture taken in the class picture. She couldn't have her school pictures taken either, nor was she allowed to participate in any birthday celebrations, her own or anyone else's. 
And according to those guys in the white shirts and the black ties that come knocking on your door, by grace, their, their book says, quote, by grace we are saved after all we can do, end quote. That's what we call legalism. And did you know for about $4,000 you can buy your very own Samadhi tank? You say, what in the world is a Samadhi tank? Well, I'm glad you asked. A Samadhi tank is a uh, sensory deprivation tank that shuts out all light and noise. And so what you do is you get this tank and you put about 10 inches of water in it and 800 pounds of Epsom salt, get that well mixed, and then you get into that tank, you close the door, and you float. You float in total darkness. And so with your senses fully deprived, you float in this simulated weightlessness so that you can then link with the one and thereby produce some psychic powers. That's mysticism. Islam demands that Muslims fast between sunrise and sunset during the religious month of Ramadan. Other religions say you can find the one through yoga, meditation, or some other rigorous spiritual discipline. That's what we call asceticism. Now, all four of these isms, ritualism, uh, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, they can be found in various religions around the world. They exist today. They've existed for a long, long time, and they exist for the quest, in the quest of spiritual life or spiritual meaning or the meaning to life or ultimate reality. And they're not new, even the isms of the day. They've been around a long time. And they actually pose a real threat to true Christianity. If they didn't, Paul wouldn't write what he writes here in Colossians chapter 2. In these verses, in particular, we're going to focus on verses 16 through 23 this morning. He addresses them, each of them, in some way. And he warns us uh, to beware of them because these isms, if we fall prey to them, instead of helping you gain spiritual insight or understanding or meaning, instead of helping you, they will cause spasms in your Christian life. Now, let's get the context. I had us read, beginning in verse 8, because uh, Paul is, is addressing in the earlier section here that you, are, you who are in Christ Jesus, you are complete in him. You need nothing more. Remember that in verse 10. You are complete in Christ, who's the head of all principality and power. And he pointed out, Paul pointed out, that because of the work of Christ on the cross, there is nothing more needed for your justification. Nothing. Jesus paid it all. That's the emphasis of verses 11 to 15. He warned against listening to, quote, philosophy and vain deceit according to human tradition and basic principles of the world. It says that in verse 8. And, and he, he warns us against listening to those things as if, more is required because all is paid. In Christ, you are complete. But 
don't you and I have to do some things? Don't we have to do something in order to maybe be more saved? Don't we have to do some things to prove that we're saved? Not to picture salvation like baptism, picturing salvation, but to, but to prove that we're saved. Don't we, have to, don't we have to do things to prove that we've been justified? Or don't we have to do things? Aren't there things we are required to do in order to be truly holy and to gain God's favor and his blessing? Well, verses 16 to 23, the answer is no. We don't do things in order to earn and merit God's favor, God's blessing. So we need to beware of some isms, and they, those four isms I mentioned are brought out here in, these, in this passage. So look at verse 16. He says, first of all, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now what he's talking about here um, is, is ritualism. Ritualism, trusting in rites, that is R-I-T-E-S, trusting in rites in order to gain salvation or to enhance your salvation. There are two basic teachings related to ritualism. One of them is that a rite or rituals are effective, that God's grace comes to you as you practice those rites or those rituals. For example, not long ago, many people practiced uh, the ritual of Lent. They went through that whole period of time where you know they 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 did they gave up certain foods or they gave up something they liked or whatever as a, as giving it up for Lent. And many people do so thinking that I will gain God's favor. I will earn grace. As I give something up, I will get something from God as I give something up. Some people have that same attitude about attending church. I will gain favor from God. I will earn his favor if I just go to church every Sunday. And so as a ritual, they get up and they go to church every Sunday. Or they recite certain prayers. You know, they... they, they, they do the rosary thing, or they just have the ritual every day of getting up and saying, Our Father who art in heaven, and praying the Lord's Prayer, or something of that nature. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer from the heart. I don't, don't misunderstand me here. But if our thinking is that I can just mouth these words, I can recite these words, I can do this ritual, and God will therefore bless me, I will get grace in doing so, then I have become a ritualist, thinking that the rite itself is effective. Another teaching of ritualism is that those rites are essential. They are essential. That you do not get grace without doing the ritual. So, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, um, you, you take your infant to the church and have the church baptized, baptize that baby as an infant, and that baby is then, quote-unquote, saved. It's, it's in the church. The baby is in the church and will go to heaven eventually, eventually. 
may, if the, if the child doesn't really grow up and live much like a Christian or whatever, as long as he's been baptized in the church, he can have a burial by the church and he will eventually go through purgatory and all this kind of stuff and, and eventually make it. But the key is the rite. The rite has been performed. It's essential. Apart from that rite, you're, you're hopeless. You're hopeless. Those are the basic teachings of ritualism. Well, the consequences of ritualism are very severe. I want you to go back with me to uh, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And Paul deals much in uh, Galatians with the problem of legalism, but he brings out also uh, an expression of legalism that finds itself in ritualism. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter, or Galatians 5, verse 1. One of the consequences of ritualism is that it enslaves you. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. A ritual that is performed legalistically as a legality is a, will bring you into bondage. You have to do it. You are enslaved to it. It enslaves you. Verse 3, furthermore, it obligates you. Look at verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. And he's talking about that ritual, that Old Testament ritual. You are then obligated to keep the whole law. You are a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, you can't, you can't pick and choose the rituals that the religion that tells you you have to practice and practice one and not another. Now, back in, in Colossians chapter 2, when Paul talks in, uh, in verse, uh, verse 16 about the food and drink or the, festival, the, the festivals and new moon or Sabbaths, he's talking about these Old Testament uh, practices that had some uh, teaching value to them, and they were required of the, in the Old Covenant and the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. We'll say more about the legalism here in a minute. But those were rituals that were performed. You, you, you couldn't eat certain food. You couldn't drink certain drink. You had to practice certain Festivals. You had to participate in certain festivals. There were different Sabbaths through the course of the year that you had to, you had to follow religiously. Those were rituals. Now, what's the answer to ritualism? Well, the answer to ritualism is Christ. It's Christ. So, again, in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 5, in verse 6, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Faith in the person and work of Christ is the answer to ritualism. A ritual can't save you. A ritual can't, a ritual can't make you holy. Christ saves you. It is Christ who makes you holy. Here in the book of Colossians, in our, our uh, text today that we read, in verse 10 again, Paul says, you are complete in him. You are complete in Christ. So if you are complete in Christ, what ritual should you add 
to make you more complete. There is none. You are complete in him. And verses 16 and 17, he says, So let no one judge you in these things. Those things are just a shadow. Those Old Testament rituals were just a shadow of things to come. They were to point to Christ. They were in some way to teach of Christ, to anticipate Christ. But Christ has come. He has fulfilled those things. The substance is Christ. Christ is the answer to ritualism. So don't fall prey to the thinking that I must engage in certain rituals in order to become more holy. Now, having said that, is there therefore no value in attending church every week? Should I not attend church every week? No, you should attend church every week. Gathering together with God's people is exhorted in the is, is exhorted in the New Testament. We are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But we don't engage in those things as rituals as if the ritual itself will gain me merit with God as if the ritual itself will make me more holy. What will enhance holiness? What will grow me in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the learning of Christ. It's the gathering with Christ's people. It's the engagement with Christ's word. It is Christ as we meet with him in these various ways. So beware of ritualism. Secondly, and closely connected to ritualism, admittedly, is legalism. Beware of legalism. Legalism is different in this way. Legalism uh, encourages us to trust in rules, rules and regulations in order to gain salvation or a greater dose of salvation, if you will. Again, in verses 16 and 17. These rituals of food and festivals, as I mentioned earlier, were tied to Old Testament ceremonial laws. Now, the basic tenet of legalism goes like this. You must observe a list of rules in order to be saved and or to grow in Christ. So again, verse 16, look at verse 16. Verse 16, there were those who were saying, you have to follow certain dietary restrictions. Can't eat certain stuff, you can't drink certain stuff. You have to follow these Old Testament dietary restrictions. And this example further continues in the last part of the verse, you have to observe Old Testament festivals. There were annual festivals, there were monthly festivals, the new moon and so forth. There were weekly, uh, there were weekly Sabbaths that had to be observed. You have to observe these things by law. If you don't observe these things, you are breaking the law. You are a law breaker and therefore you are inherently not right with God. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in these things. Is this strictly a problem with Jews who are carrying over Old Testament stuff into the New Testament? No, this is is a trap that New Testament Christians can fall into as well. It's one of the 
and I've mentioned this uh, on other occasions here before, it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the traps that um, a, a, lot of, a lot of conservative uh, churches have fallen into when they added to their ministry a Christian school, for example. Because a Christian school, you know, you have to have certain organizational rules and regulations, but you also, you also want certain codes of conduct and standards of, of conduct and so forth, right? You know, so there, there, may be, there would be dress codes. There will be hair codes for boys and skirt lengths for girls and things like that in, in Christian school dress codes, other kinds of rules and regulations that had to be uh, adhered to. There was a Christian school I was associated with one time. It had the rule that uh, you could not go to a movie theater. Well, uh, that was all well and good. That was pretty easy to keep that rule because you have to physically get in a car and drive to a theater and put money down and all that kind of stuff. But the, um, the opportunity to watch the same movies that are at the movie theater in your home became uh, a lot easier. You could just go down to the blockbuster, the, vi the, the video rental store, and you could rent a video and you could take it home and you could watch that same movie in the privacy of your home. And then it became even easier with Netflix and downloadable movies and all that kind of stuff on the computer. So, you know, a Christian school that then made the rule that you could not rent a, a you know, video to take home and watch unless it was a G-rated uh, video. Well, then the questions start coming, right? Well, uh, why... why why do you have the right to tell me what I can watch in my own home? Do you, do you have the right to tell me what I watch on my television? Do you, and, and how, how what, and, and then of course it's a question, why is it okay to rent a G-rated movie at the blockbuster, but not to go to the movie theater and watch a G-rated movie at the movie theater? Why is that not, what's the difference? Why can't I do that? Well, because here's the line of reasoning. If somebody sees you going into the movie theater, they don't know if you're going to see, you know, 101 Dalmatians, or if you're going to watch the, going to see The Exorcist. They don't know. And they might think you're going to see the R-rated movie and not the G-rated movie. Well, wouldn't that be their problem? Well, no, because you have to be concerned about your testimony. But if I go to the Blockbuster and I rent a G-rated movie and somebody sees me, do they know whether I'm renting a G-rated or an R-rated all they know is they see me in the blockbuster. And then eventually it gets down to, look, this is the rule, and you have to follow it. And that's, that's one thing on the level of the school itself. But in, in, invariably, that gets transferred over to the church as a whole. The same line of thinking that is directing the behavior of children in the school becomes the direction that uh, controls the behavior of the adults in the pew on Sunday. And if you don't happen to go along with a line of reasoning and the actual practice of the rule, 
then guess what? You're not spiritual. There's something wrong with you. You have broken the law. You are not right with God. You, you see how that works? You see how easily that can infiltrate our thinking. Well, that's the basic tenet of legalism. You have to observe a set of extra-biblical rules and regulations in order to be saved or to grow in Christ. Well, the consequences of legalism are several. Notice one of them is that the rules, and I've indicated this, the rules become a basis of judgment. Paul says in verse 16, so let no one judge you regarding these things. Why does he say that? Because it's happening. People are judging on the basis of the keeping of the rules. I'll tell you how this happened to me. And I, again, I've shared some of this with you before. There's the congregation through the 20 years I've been here. But I went to Bob Jones, and when I went to Bob, Bob Jones has a rule book. The rule book is, is bigger than... than the book of Deuteronomy. Um, not really, I'm just I'm kidding. But it is more meticulous in some things. But, but you know, they, and, and I understood a lot, I understand a lot of the rules, I understand a lot of the regulations, but here's what happened to me. I'm not saying this happens to everybody, here's what happened to me. I went there, you know, at, at a change, at a point in my life where I, I was... I was moving away from, I had, I had made a cut from a life of rebellion against the Lord to a life of, I want to do what the Lord wants me to do. I want to go where he wants me to go. I want to be what he wants me to be. So I'm like, tell me what that looks like. All right? What does that look like? So I go to, to school, and the rule book says, men need to have haircuts where it's, the hair is not touching the ears, it's off the collar in the back, and, uh, you know, tapered in the back as well. That's the men's, that's the guy's haircut. No facial hair is allowed. <clears throat> well, you know, I didn't really question it. I accepted it. It's okay, you know. So first day I, I land in Greenville and first, you know, right after registering at the school, I went across the street to the barbershop and got the, got the haircut, got the cut. And that's the cut. That's the cut you got to have. Well, that's all well and good on one level, except for what it did to me. It, 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 it led me into thinking that a guy who's got hair over his ears or on the collar in the back of his, in his shirt is somehow not right with God, that he's, he's straying from the right path. I remember, sitting, I remember sitting in chapel one day. I was about 10 rows back from the main speaker, and I'm looking up at this speaker, and, and I can see his hair is like half an inch over his ears. And I'm thinking, how can they let this guy preach in the pulpit? This isn't right. And it was uh, after, uh, I think it was after... Uh, Christmas break, or maybe it was going back to school after my my freshman uh, summer. Well, I've been to school for a, for a year, and summer break, and going back to school for a sophomore year, and my dad's driving me to back to campus, and I had just heard that Cedarville University College at the time 
was allowing men's students to wear mustache, to have mustaches. And I lamented to my dad that this was a terrible compromise, that they were allowing guys to have mustaches, you know. And my dad was like, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's, it's sinful. But dad, did you know that last year at the talent show, they let some, they let some guy sing with a guitar to sing the song Rocky Mountain High by John Denver at a talent show on the campus? You see... Do you see what had happened to my heart? I had allowed my heart to become legalistic, concluding that because they weren't following the rules of the university, the Christian school where I was attending, they weren't as Christian. They weren't as spiritual. I'm more spiritual because I'm following these rules, even when I'm not there. So one of the consequences, it becomes a, legalism becomes a basis for judgment. It also becomes, the rules become a form of bondage. They become a form of bondage. You must have your devotions every morning before going to work. Hold on, I didn't say it's not a good idea. It is a good idea. It's a good idea to read your Bible every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, 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 right? But is there a law? Is there a rule? Listen, there's not even a rule in the Bible that tells you you have to read your Bible every day. It's not there. Now, is it a, do I not have to do it then? Let me tell you something. You do not have to read your Bible and pray every day. You don't have to. Say, Pastor, you're preaching heresy. No. Do I want you to? Yes. I want you to want to. I want you to want to. I want you to desire to. I want you to, if, if, you, if, you, if the alarm doesn't go off and you get up late and you say, oh man, I got to get to work, and, and you don't have time to, to read your Bible because you want to read your Bible, I don't want you walking out the door saying, Oh, no, God's going to get me today. My day is going to be terrible today because I didn't read my Bible. I actually had a lady tell me this one day. She says, I know if I don't read my Bible in the morning, I know I'm going to have a bad day. God's not going to let me have a good day. No, don't fall prey to that kind of legalism. Oh, let your heart be warmed with a desire to hunger for the word, to take advantage of opportunities you have, even make opportunities by setting an alarm clock so you can have daily devotions and all the rest of that. But listen, don't fall prey to the idea that says that I must have my devotions every day. God requires it of me. God demands it of me. And if I don't do it, God's going to get me. It's sin. Don't go there. There's another consequence of legalism is that the rules become a source of anxiety. Because here's the thing, you never are quite sure that you measure up. Because you're never quite certain 
that you've done enough. And therefore, you never really know if you're holy, if you're going to make it or not. There's just this constant state of anxiety. What's the answer to legalism? Christ. Christ. Put your faith in his work, not yours, in his work. Put your faith in his keeping of the law, not your keeping of man-made rules. So back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, listen to what Paul says. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, either the Old Testament ceremonial law or man-made spiritual-sounding laws, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Put your faith in Christ's work. Put your faith in Christ's fulfillment. Back in Colossians 2, verse 17, look at verse 17. It says those Old Testament ceremonial laws were a shadow of things to come. They had a place, but their place was to point to Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament ceremonial laws. And we're talking about things, a form of legalism that can infiltrate our thinking as New Testament Christians that are not even Old Testament ceremonial law things. They're, they're derivatives of derivatives oftentimes of biblical principles that then become, then become laws that we think we have to maintain and fulfill if we're ever going to be right with God, if we're ever going to be holy. Beware of legalism. Thirdly, beware of mysticism. By the way, let me go back. Uh, regarding Bob Jones, interesting. Guys can wear, guys can have beards. Now, there's no rule against facial hair on guys. And girls, uh, when I was there, girls had to wear dresses, skirts, every day, 24-7. Uh, they, they were allowed to go to the gym from the girls' dorm in slacks, but they had to go back a back way so they wouldn't be seen by a guy or something like that. That's all gone. Um, so a lot of those things that, that were interpreted as spiritually mandated for growth in Christ have fortunately been, you know, kind of eradicated. Beware of legalism. Thirdly, beware of mysticism. Mysticism. What is mysticism? In mysticism, I'm trusting in experiences for salvation or sanctification. I'm, I'm trusting in experiences we're going to see this in verses 18 and 19. The basic tenet of mysticism says this. You need to have some kind of mystical or spiritual experience to be saved and to grow spiritually. You need to have some kind of mystical or spiritual experience to be saved and grow spiritually. Look at verses 18 and 19. 
Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. Typical elements of mysticism involve an intense effort of experiencing some things. So, first part of verse 18. One of the things that mysticism wants to experience is ecstatic worship, quote-unquote. Uh, delight, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. This, 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 uh, this kind of ecstatic worship often involves a false humility. Think, for example, of uh, some of the TV charlatans you've seen. You turn them on and they just exude this kind of, a, oh, I'm such a humble guy. I'm just a humble guy. I'm a humble guy. Some of them do. But then they want to manufacture some kind of other world, otherworldly sort of ecstasy. They take delight in false humility and the worship of angels. The worship of angels. What is that? Well, we don't exactly know what the expression of the worship of angels was in the first century when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. We don't know what they were actually doing. But what often occurs in this mysticism kind of ecstatic worship is the, the focus on otherworldly stuff that gets you pumped up into an ecstasy. For example... In the Second Great Awakening, there was a genuine awakening. There was a genuine revival, and people's lives were being changed, and radically so. But there were some who got caught up into, sort of, into some ecstatic sort of expressions that they thought gave greater spirituality. So you had people who were falling down in laughing fits, Others who were just, just flat out fainting and fainting fits. There were those who were, they, they kind of broke out in a frenzy, in screams and uh, tongues, they called it, but just, just gibberish. It was just all very uh, emotionally driven ecstasy, but all the time claiming to be spiritual, that this is, this is worship experience. Ecstatic worship is one of, those, uh, one of those elements of mysticism. Another, in the last part of verse 18, is exciting experiences. Intruding into the unseen. Intruding into the unseen. How many times have you read about or heard about the, like, the cults? where the founder, the leader of the cult, got his start and got people to follow him because of some vision that he had. Joseph Smith, for example, founder of Mormonism, uh, had this supposed vision of an angel while sitting under a tree. Uh, the, the, the angel came to him and gave him these revelations. And he went back and told everybody, I had this angel, I had this angel tell me this stuff. And, he, and people followed him. People listened to him, intruding into the unseen. Others will try to 
lead you astray by telling they had a vision of Jesus or an angel came to them and told them this thing or they had these visions of demons that warned them about such and such or they had a vision of heaven they died and went to heaven and 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 they they they, they got to have this all this experience in heaven and then they came back and they they've come back to tell you about it intruding into the unseen There are some implicit dangers of mysticism that are brought out here in this passage. One of them is there's a a sort of arrogant carnality. An arrogant carnality. The end of verse 18 says they are vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. Here's the way this works. I had a vision of Jesus. And when I had this vision of Jesus, this is what he told me. Have you had such a vision of Jesus? Oh, you haven't? Oh, well, I'll pray for you that someday you'll have such a vision of Jesus like I had. You see this? It, my, my vision, my experience makes me special, makes me unique. Ah, it makes me better than you, more spiritual than you, superior to you, vainly puffed up. It also leads to mysticism, unwarranted condemnation. You see this in verse 18. It says, let no one cheat you of your reward. Literally, that could be read this way. Let no one deprive you of your reward. It's not that You have the reward, and this person comes to you and can actually take it away from you, and you therefore no longer have it. It instead, I think, has the idea of this, that you the reward that you have, you don't see it as a reward, you lose sight of it as a reward, and it is as if you don't have it as a reward. Here's what I mean by that. You haven't spoken in tongues. You haven't had this ecstatic experience. You haven't had a vision like this? Are you even saved? Are you, are you, could, how could you be right with God? But here's the thing. You are saved. If you've come to faith in Christ, you are saved. You are God's child. But that person is trying to deprive you of your reward of being in Christ Jesus and all that is in store for you in, in, as one who is in Christ Jesus and wants to get you to think that you're not because you haven't had this experience, this mystical experience. And a third danger of mysticism is decapitation. What do I mean? Verse 19, not holding fast to the head. Who is the head? Christ. Christ is the head. If, if you start relying upon some kind of mystical experience for your spiritual vitality, for your spiritual growth, then that's going to cut you off from the only true source of salvation and spiritual growth, Christ. And there's, a, there's sort of a law of diminished returns when it comes to this as well. You have to keep up the ecstasy. I've heard... I've heard some former worship leaders in contemporary churches who lamented the place that they got to 
in their role as a worship leader. I'm talking about leading the praise band and all that kind of stuff. They said, they have said, they have testified, we had such pressure put on us week after week to duplicate the emotional experience that I couldn't take it anymore. If we didn't duplicate it, then we failed. If people didn't go out ecstatic over the emotional experience crafted by the worship time, then they criticized us. Diminished returns. You have to keep up the ecstasy. And this is true not, not only in that kind of a thing, but also, look, in your devotional time, in church services, etc., if you start evaluating those things primarily from the emotional impact, you're, you're, you're falling prey to one of the dangers of mysticism. Okay, so today I read my Bible, and I, I could go to my, my little tablet here where I record my thoughts from my devotional reading and the couple of chapters I read in the Old Testament, and I, you know, honest, I, didn't, I didn't write a lot down today. I, I really didn't. I must not be right with God because there wasn't anything that really, bam, hit me today like it does some other days. Oh, I could go to some other days and I, I, I can hardly keep it all on a page. There's just so much that comes out in that reading. And it, but today, that's not so much. I must not be right with God. No, no. Look, true growth comes in Christ. The answer to mysticism same as the answer to legalism and ritualism, it is Christ. Verse 19 says, exhorts us by way of the opposite, exhorts us to hold fast to the head. Hold fast to the head. This is, it is only possible for us to hold fast to the head through, listen, watch this, through the objective word of God. Christ is the word, right? It's only possible to hold fast to the head through the objective word of God, not, here's the point, not through subjective experience. You grow in Christ through his word and not through experience. Lastly, in verses 20 to 23, beware of asceticism, asceticism. Asceticism is trusting in self-denial for salvation. Trusting in self-denial for salvation. Verse 20 says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principle of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. These things have an appearance, verse 23, of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. Neglect of the body, or literally punishing the body. The basic tenet of asceticism goes like this. You must, you must deprive your beast, that is your body, in order to gain merit with God, in order to be saved, order, in order to prove that you're saved. You must deprive your body. Look at the source of such teaching, the end of verse 22. It's according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Going back to the idea of legalism, aren't we? 
And back in verse 8, Paul talked about the same kind of thing. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. Let me give you some of the elements of, of asceticism. One of them is that you deprive your body, as I mentioned, like verse 21, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You, the, end, the middle of verse 23, you neglect or you punish the body. You deprive your body. A second element of asceticism is you elevate your will. You elevate your will. Verse 23 talks about self-imposed religion or a self-willed piety or a strict self-discipline, watch, that squelches even good, healthy appetites in order to gain supposed spiritual benefits. Like what? Like vows of poverty, vows of chastity, vows of silence, eating only bread and water, going out into the desert as a monastic. Those are extreme examples. But they're not limited to those. I'll share a couple in a moment. A third element of asceticism is a display of humility in verse 23. These things have an appearance of humility, an appearance of humility. To the casual observer, the person who is an ascetic looks to be a very humble person. Look at what they're doing to themselves. They must really be spiritual. They must be godly. Look at, how, look at how they have deprived themselves of so much. But in reality, they may be engaging in a form of pride and probably are. Let me show you a couple of consequences of asceticism. One of them is a, a superficial fix in verse 22. Or, I'm sorry, verse 23. These things have an appearance of wisdom but look at the end of the verse. They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Outwardly, these things look very sensible. Inwardly, they are insignificant and insufficient. I could name you several well-known, at one time prominent, very conservative fundamentalist guys who were leaders in churches in fundamentalism who were rigid, rigid guys. I mean rigid. They had schools. They were very strict in the rules of their schools. But three men I could name, right? You know, dump it up, it up. All three of these men have, are or have been in prison for immoral behavior with minor girls, underage girls. So what good did all of their stuff do? All of their ascetic practices do. Oh, it kept a lot of things in check on a physical level, but it didn't do anything about the heart, and it didn't stop them from engaging in criminal activity. This is what Paul is saying. There's an appearance of wisdom. And, and when, they, when they explain all of their rules, their self-imposed rules, and their, their regulations that they impose upon themselves and upon everybody else, it all makes sense. It all sounds like it's wise, but it's not. It doesn't really do any good. And another consequence of asceticism in verse 20 is an improper, there's an improper identification. 
If you died with Christ, why, living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Why, as though living in the world, why you're, you're living with the world? You're behaving like the world. I said, well, no, I'm not. The world is doing all this stuff, and I'm not. No, but what you are doing, like the world, is you are imposing upon yourself stuff that you think is going to fix you. This is what the world does. Behavior modification kind of stuff. Put, put, put stuff around you that keeps you from all this kind of thing, that keeps you down, that squelches you. This is, the, this is the pagan approach, leaves Christ out approach. I know a well-known preacher who promoted fasting, for example, and his approach to fasting was exactly the approach to fasting of paganism. Same sort of practices, none of which were biblical. None of them were biblical, but they were good to keep your flesh under control, he said, he decreed, while he was engaging in immoral behavior. The answer to asceticism is the same as the answer to ritualism and legalism and mysticism. It is Christ. Christ. Verse 20, therefore, since you died with Christ. And look at verse, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. Since then, you were raised with Christ. Seek those things that are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. In other words, look, focus not on dying for Christ, but living for Him. Why? Because you died with him already. You died with Christ. Now live for Christ. Live with him. Walk with him. The answer to asceticism is Christ and Christ alone. All right, so let me ask you, what are you, what are you trusting in to get to heaven? Even to grow as a Christian, are you trusting in some rite, some ritual, a list of rules and regulations, some mind-boggling experiences, or your, uh, your ability to deprive yourself of what you'd really like, none of those things will do. Only Christ can save you. Only Christ can make you more like him. Only if you are in Christ can you become like Christ. Our Father in heaven, Deliver us from these isms that can really, in the end, spiritually ruin us. Oh, Lord, mold us and shape us into Christ-like disciples, we pray in Jesus' name.